Uh, We are in the ninth chapter of Mark, as it was just read for us, and the transfiguration of Jesus. That's a a scene that is, I think, hard to understand. Why did this happen? What is its meaning? What is its message? And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at. Uh, we've seen up to this point in the in the Gospel of Mark, and particularly leaving off at the end of, of chapter 8, that Jesus has been spending his time in Galilee as he has been teaching. He's gone to the Gentiles as well. And what is interesting about this final scene here in chapter 9 is the, these are the final words and final teachings before he makes his way to Jerusalem. Uh, even though it doesn't feel like we're very far into the book, here at the ninth chapter is becoming a pivot point that now he's going to turn his focus toward Jerusalem and go then to his betrayal and to his arrest, to his death, and ultimately to his resurrection. Which is one of the reasons why the end of chapter 8, Jesus has initiated his teaching about what's going to happen to him. He has been telling his disciples plainly that he's going to be uh, uh, betrayed, he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, he's going to be raised three days later. And the disciples have had a problem with that. We see Peter pulling Jesus aside and rebuking him over that. And now we have a, this this amazing scene that that unfolds. That is, we we call the transfiguration of Jesus. I don't suppose we really use transfiguration in our language anymore. I don't think I've used that except for this text. Uh, but that word just simply means transformed. It's used other places in the New Testament of just being transformed. So this is a transformation that is occurring that we are reading. But there's quite a bit of setup that the Gospel of Mark gives to us that will help us understand the framework by which to read this, this amazing scene. You'll notice in verse 2, the picture that's given for us here is after six days... Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John and he leads them up on a high mountain. What is really interesting about the Gospel of Mark, we saw it back in chapter 1 and verse 1, that this is the the Gospel according to Isaiah that is now being shown in the fulfillment of Jesus. That Isaiah's Gospel and Isaiah's message has been completely about a new exodus with a new covenant and a Savior who's going to come. And here is this scene now that is going to borrow heavily from the imagery from Exodus. And if you've been with us over the past years, we've gone through the book of Exodus, you will quickly identify so many of the similarities that that boil out of this text. Immediately you notice in verse 2 that we're told that six days pass by until now this event happens, which is exactly what happens on Mount Sinai. When the people are there at Sinai, you notice that God comes to them and says there's going to be these six days as the glory of the Lord comes down. And then on the seventh day, God is going to speak to them. There's a strong parallel here with that. It's also interesting that there are three named people that go with Moses up on that mountain. And here with Jesus, it is fascinating that he does not take his whole 12 with him. He leaves the majority of his 12 behind and he takes three named ones, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on the mountain. And you'll notice that in verse in verse 2, it says that he was transformed or transfigured before them and his clothes became 
radiant, intensely white. None like could be bleached or like no other launderer could possibly achieve. This brilliant, radiant shining begins to take place with Jesus, which if you remember, that was also part of the Sinai incident. As you have Moses and he comes back down on the mountain, what's going on with him? But all of this radiance that is shining off of him. So before we get into any of the scene of this transfiguration and all that happens and what is said, you'll notice that Mark just sets up with this picture of divine glory that parallels Mount Sinai. It is very reminiscent of the things that had happened there. And so with this, you see, I think, just a stunning scene that Jesus is transformed before them. His clothes are radiant. They are intensely white. There is just this shining that takes place that seems to indicate for this amazing moment Peter, James, and John are allowed to see the glory that has been housed in that physical body of Jesus. What an amazing scene that had to be. You just you want to visualize that. You want to just think about what those three men saw at that moment here. As suddenly as they come up on this mountain, just this radiance that, that shines from them. And if that was not enough... Then you have in verse 4, perhaps even more staggering to layer on top of staggering, as the glory of Jesus is shining intensely wide and radiant and glowing, suddenly there appears Elijah and Moses. (laughs) What, What a scene this is. In fact, I think it is so interesting that you even have Peter just simply go, It's good for us to be here. This this is unbelievable. This is amazing what is happening before our eyes. We're seeing the glory of Jesus. Here's the the glory of God and all of His radiance. And then also now here is Moses and here is Elijah. I think it's important that we ask the question, why these two figures are here? Why do we have Elijah and Moses now appearing here? And I think it would be clear in our consideration of that question, why Elijah and why Moses, that somehow this has to be for the benefit of Peter, James, and John. I don't think we would stand back and say, well, there was something that Jesus needed from Moses and Elijah before he could continue forward uh, and going on to Jerusalem. This is intended for these disciples. It's intended for Peter, James, and John. And they certainly seem to be aware of that by not only saying, you know, it is good for us to be here, but I love Peter. Let's build some tents. <laughs> let's, let's build three tents and, and we're just going to stay here on this mountain. We're not going to go anywhere and we're just going to hunker down because this is too glorious. This is amazing what is going on. But I think there's a lot more that is going on in, in, in this scene. And a lot of people throw their darts in trying to figure out, well, why Moses and why Elijah? Because there's an awful lot of similarities between the two in terms of their character and in terms of their ministry. 
Uh, Number one, it is pretty interesting that they both had witnessed the glory of God on a mountain. I think that's particularly fascinating that Elijah and Moses are unique in that characteristic is that they have God experiences at a mountain. And so Moses, Elijah, perhaps that's part of the fitting idea between them. Uh, It's interesting. Both of them are faithful servants of God who experience suffering and difficulty, but are later vindicated by God. And you see that with with both of them. And perhaps that's some part of the reason why these two would be selected in this scene. I think it shouldn't be ignored that Moses and Elijah are your miracle workers in the Old Testament. Sometimes we have this idea that everybody's performing miracles all over the place. And that is absolutely incorrect. Uh, Moses performs miracles through his hands. Uh, Elijah and Elisha perform miracles through their hands. And that's kind of the big sum total of things. They're they're the the big ones in terms of miracle workers and stand alone in terms of that power. And perhaps that's part of the reason why. But I would submit to you that I think the big reason why, well, I believe all those are valid and useful, is that both Moses and Elijah have mentioned about them an idea of a messianic salvation, about their work. And what they were doing was all pointing to a grand arrival of the Messiah. Let me show you a couple of those. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4 says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Notice that Malachi connects up Moses and Elijah together and there is a picture of Elijah the prophet is going to come and he's going to restore. He's going to restore the hearts of the people, fathers to children, children to fathers, a restoration imagery. Now that's very important for what the disciples are going to say later on in in this scene. So keep that prophecy in your mind. Add to it the prophecy that we probably know pretty well in Deuteronomy regarding Moses. Here is Moses' prophecy in chapter 18 and verse 15 of Deuteronomy. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Notice it's not just simply we often kind of truncate this prophecy into, well, another Moses is going to come. True, but notice what God says about that. Another Moses is going to arise and God's words are going to be in his mouth. And if you don't listen to what he says, you're going to be held accountable for it. That's the whole of that prophecy. 
a new Moses who's going to speak God's words and you will be judged if you don't listen. So listen to what he says. Now that I think plays very strongly into this because everything that was said about Elijah and about Moses now is intended for us to apply into this scene and see it with Jesus. Because notice the very next thing that happens. After the disciples are there and they're seeing this and Peter says, we should build three tents. Peter's interrupted in in, in verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You feel the weight of Deuteronomy 18 and of Malachi 4 here. This is the one. This is the son. This is the one that Moses and Elijah were spoken of. You should listen to him. You must listen to him. This is the big idea that you have here is that God's words are in his mouth and judgment will come to those who do not listen to what he's saying. Now add on a little bit. You still have more Mount Sinai seen here, right? With the cloud coming down over the mountain. We still adding all of the Sinai imagery, which when you read about clouds coming, that's usually the presence of God. And here you see that as the father now speaks from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And notice the response of the disciples to all of these things. They're just outright terrified, which, by the way, that's also what happened at Sinai. When God spoke, the people were terrified. In fact, that's what is even quoted in Deuteronomy 18 about why he would send another to come because you're right to be terrified of God. I think it's interesting all how all that plays out. And yet even still, as they're terrified, I love that it says they're not knowing what to, he didn't know what to say, verse 6, because they were terrified. I was reading some books and I'm, A lot of people cap on Peter for saying what he says. I don't know why. (laughs) I I, I don't know. I guess I have compassion for Peter. It seems like everybody wants to beat him up for everything that he does. Have you ever been a part of something that was so glorious, so amazing, or so terrifying that you just didn't know what to say, but you felt like you had to say something? (laughs) I think that's kind of where you're at with these guys. They're looking at this. And it's not just the glory of Jesus that has now been revealed before them. Moses and Elijah, shown to still be alive. They're not dead. There they are. They're right there talking to Jesus. So here's resurrection proof that they're not just dead and gone. They're speaking with Jesus. And while all of that discussion is going on, this cloud bowls down. And the voice from heaven says, that's my beloved son. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah disappear and that's it. Seen over. I'd be terrified. (laughs) I'd also want to know what was that about? What is the meaning of all of this? What is the big picture that that is going on? And one of the things that's obvious that's being displayed here is, of course, the preeminence of Jesus. All of this is funneling into this grand scene that 
you would see the glory of Jesus. We have been watching that chapter after chapter in Mark's Gospel, and this becomes this pinnacle of the glory of Jesus on display as they've been just trying to understand who Jesus is. And and Jesus keeps expressing Himself in a number of ways, not only in His teachings, but these majestic miracles that He's accomplished. And now this transfiguration, this transformation that you see the glory of Jesus at that moment. And it is so powerful that you even have in verse 9, as they come down, Jesus says, I don't want you to tell anybody about it until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And that causes a real problem for these disciples at that moment. They've just witnessed all of this. They have seen the glory of God to some extent in Jesus. And then Jesus says, don't talk about this until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Now the problem with them is not the not talking about it. The problem is, how are you saying that you're going to be dead? Remember, that was the problem in chapter 8. Chapter 8, Jesus is plainly saying, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. That's plainly telling them in 831, those, those things. The disciples cannot comprehend them. And now the challenge is even greater. You are seeing the glory of Jesus, Moses and Elijah, the superiority and preeminence of Jesus. This is the Son. He's the one that Moses and Elijah were all talking about. He's the fulfillment of it. And then the words out of your mouth, the thing that Jesus first says to them as they're now coming back down the mountain is, don't talk about this until I'm risen from the dead. And notice that's the stone on their shoe. Verse 10. And they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. This does not add up. How can Jesus be who He is as they have plainly seen, especially in this glorious scene, this massive radiance, and then turn around and say... Well, I'm going to be raising from the dead. And that's what they're struggling with. How are we to understand this? What does this mean? And this is what they are asking in verse 12. Verse 11, actually. Verse 11. They ask him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, we might read that and go, that seems like an off-the-wall Question, But it's really not. It fits everything that we've just read in terms of Malachi and Deuteronomy. Malachi said, Elijah's going to come and he's restoring everything. He's restoring hearts. Look for him to come and to restore. And at the same time of claiming this restoration, Jesus is walking around saying... 
the leaders are going to cause me to suffer and kill me and I will be raised three days later. Do you see the collision of the problem that they are trying to figure out? How in the world can we have Elijah first come and restore all things when the Son of Man you're saying is going to suffer and die? How is that even possible? How is that restoration? Doesn't that sound like going the wrong direction? How can Elijah come first who is restoring and you're coming after him and saying you're dying? Doesn't make sense. Shouldn't Elijah come after Jesus and restore after Jesus dies? Why would we have Elijah in front? How do you restore and then die? That's the question. And notice how Jesus answers that in verse 12. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Notice he knows what they're asking and he's getting them to think about it. Yep, Elijah does come first. You don't have that wrong. The scribes are right. Elijah does come first. That's exactly what Malachi 3 and Malachi 4 said. So it's exactly as the prophecy says, and yet still he confirms. The Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But notice how he brings this around in verse 13. And then we'll start working on what this means. Verse 13 says, but I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. One of the things that we have going on here that Jesus is going to try to get These disciples begin to understand, and right now with just Peter, James, and John, is to try to help them understand how can it be that the restoration of all things and all of God's plans and purposes are being fulfilled just as God says, and then at the same time have the suffering and the death of Jesus. And yet what the whole point of this is, is it's going to be accomplished through that. And I hope that you'll see in verse 13, this is the big help. When Jesus says in verse 13, I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever he pleased as it is written of him. I want you to think about that one for a minute. Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they wanted. This is a reference to John the baptizer. Remember how that went back a few chapters ago in Mark 6? We saw what happened to him. Herod, Herodias, loses his head. He's killed. So Elijah did come and they did whatever they wanted to to him. But notice how that sentence is. As it is written of him. Where did it ever say that? Have you ever read that and thought about that for a minute? They're going to do whatever they want to to Elijah. And that's what the prophecy says. And you're not going to find that in Malachi. You're not going to find that anywhere. There's no prophecy that says Elijah's going to come and he's going to restore everybody and they're going to kill him and they're going to treat him badly. They're going to cause him to suffer. Where are you going to find all that? This is something that we've done a lot of work on over the, the, the many years in talking about these beautiful 
pictures that God likes to repeat in Scripture. It's not that there's a prophecy somewhere that says Elijah was going to suffer. What you were supposed to do was look at the life of Elijah and what happened to Elijah. He suffered. And you were supposed to go, so when Elijah comes again, what's supposed to happen? It's going to happen again. Just like what you have going on with the picture of Moses. When Moses comes, there's this expectation that there's going to be a new exodus. And there's going to be release from slavery. And that was the, the Israel hope. Why? Did it say that somewhere? Well, vaguely in Isaiah. But the big idea was, if you have Moses come, Moses, the new Moses, is going to do the same thing as the old Moses. That's what so much of John is about. And what they're arguing about is, the Moses back there, we had bread from heaven, so let's go. If you're the new Moses, let's see you be Moses. I'll do it. Same thing's happening here. Where does it say this of Elijah? Well, you were to look at the life of of Elijah. It's interesting that it's Ahab and Jezebel who are making Elijah's life miserable. Now you have Herod and Herodias killing John the baptizer. You have the parallel happening again. Why does Jesus want to reference that? Why is that the big deal? And how is this the message of the transfiguration? Because it's easy to read the transfiguration and go, okay, fireworks show, glory of Jesus, everybody went, wow, let's go home. That's way bigger than that. What's Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is showing is that glory... And restoration is only accomplished through suffering. This is what he's trying to lay out. Is that this is how glory comes. It's interesting if if we have so much more time. But if you roll forward just a couple paragraphs in in Mark, guess what they're going to argue over of who has glory? Who, who, who's, who's most important? Who's greatest in this? Who's the greatest in this kingdom? And right now, Jesus is establishing glory. Restoration is not going to come through this physical means that we often think of glory, of self-promotion and putting people down and knocking them out of our way, but rather through suffering. This is the picture that's given. And the reason why it's a picture that's given is because this is the message that Jesus is going to tell His disciples again and again in this Gospel. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus over and over again is showing that there is a pattern that is to be repeated. We did this way back in Mark 1. What's the pattern with John the baptizer? He goes and proclaims the gospel and what happens to him? He suffers many things and dies. Jesus is going to go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and what's going to happen to him? He's going to suffer many things and die. The apostles are going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and what's going to happen to them? They're going to suffer many things and die. This is the the, the picture that is being laid out here. Glory comes through suffering. Glory is going to come through submitting themselves. And so often what we do in our minds, and it's the same problem the disciples have right now, is we look at life and we say suffering is incompatible with glory. If we're suffering, there must be something wrong. 
God's doing something wrong. Something must be amiss. The world is spinning wrong and this can't be right. Isn't this why Peter is arguing with Jesus in the last scene six days ago? Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things and die. And they go, that can't be the way to glory. It doesn't work like that. It can't be that you suffer on the way to glory. You're wrong. And notice that you have this phenomenal picture here of, well, Moses suffered many things on the way to glory. Elijah suffered many things on the way to glory. John the baptizer suffered many things on the way to glory. And Jesus is suffering many things on the way to glory. And what do you think will be with the disciples? Glory is only going to come after the difficulty, after the suffering, after the humiliation. This is the consistent picture that's given to us. In fact, I find this part particularly fascinating. There are three places in the Gospels where the transfiguration is recorded. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have it. Guess what all three of them have right in front of this scene? What immediately had transpired right before the sermon on the, or sorry, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, and they see Moses and see Elijah and see Jesus. What event happened? The message of the prior paragraph. Look at 8.34 of Mark. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Each account starts with that. And then the very next scene is The transfiguration of Jesus. What's the message of the transfiguration? This is the one. This is the son. Listen to him. What's Jesus running around saying? What Jesus is going around saying is that suffering is not incompatible with glory. In fact, suffering is the path to glory. Self-sacrifice is the path to glory. Discipleship requires carrying a cross. Discipleship requires dying to self to be able to go to glory with God. Do you ever think about why the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, as he speaks about the cross as a stumbling block and a foolishness to Jews and Gentiles? Glory never seems in our world to be achieved through denying yourself, putting others first, giving yourself over to the will of others and suffering many things. That's not the path to glory in our world. Nobody's glorified for that. They're considered poor saps and fools when they do something like that. And notice here is this grand vision of the glory of Jesus. Glorification is coming. Moses, after living his life, here he is. He's in glory. Elijah, after living his life, here he is in glory. 
And here's Jesus saying, I'm going to suffer many things, but don't let that distract you from the glory that's to come. Here you can see it. Here is the glory of Jesus on display. That glory would come through the suffering. So hard for us to think about a life lived in this world where we are going to proactively and willfully choose to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him. And the message that sits here with the transfiguration is there's no other way to glory. Elijah does come first and restore all things. How did Elijah restore all things? Through his suffering. John came and he gave himself up to restore and to do the work that was given to him. Jesus comes to restore all things. How does he do it? By giving up himself. Sacrificing himself. If we want to follow Jesus, the path is pictured through those four Moses, Elijah, John, Jesus. The path to glory is sacrifice, the path to glory is giving up ourselves. The path to glory is denying self, saying no to ourselves. The path to glory is to no longer live for self. The path to glory is allow ourselves to suffer for the cause of Christ. The path to glory is to truly take up our cross and follow Him. The disciples are just so stuck on the idea that how could it be possible to enjoy glory and restoration with God through suffering? And I'm afraid that in our comfort, in our culture, our ease, our wealth, our riches, it is so easy for us to fall into the exact same kind of thinking. Our suffering for the cause of Christ, our willingness to let people know that we are followers of Him, that we would lay our lives on the line, that we would give ourselves to the good of other people, that we would show the light of Christ regardless of the consequences, the repercussions or difficulties that come from that. That is the calling. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And I think it's easy for us to step back, not proclaim our faith, not express the message of the gospel, to not live as a light in the world and the salt of the earth because it's going to lead to difficulties and suffering. And our comfortable Christianity just causes us to say, well, I I won't do that. 
don't want there to be difficulty with my neighbors and family and friends and all of that. So I'll compromise my life. I'll compromise the gospel. I won't say what I should say. I won't do what I will do or I should do. And it's such a powerful declaration that Jesus is making. The path to glory is through the path of suffering. Jesus said, if you want to be a disciple, come and follow him. And the voice from heaven then turns around and says, listen to him. You need to listen to him. He is the one through which glory is going to come. I hope you'll think about as you walk into this coming week. What are we going to do to display the glory of God in our lives? What are we saying to people that shows that we are willing to take up a cross and follow him? What are we doing in our lives that shows self-denial, that we are saying no to ourselves? We aren't thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about the good of the gospel, that we reflect to the world that this is not about us, that life is all about our Lord and Savior. What will we say on Monday to people? What will that look like as we deal with people in and out from acquaintances and friends and family and co-workers? What's it going to look like for us to take up our cross and follow him? What will you do this week? You're ready to take up your cross and follow him. Can we help you do that? Can you respond to the invitation today to turn away from your sins, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and begin a relationship with him. We hope that you'll come to the invitation now while we stand.